is the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein. Richard's the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He's the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU and is a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. Richard, today we've got a lot to talk about. Uh, op-ed pages at the New York Times uh, at, at, at law schools around the country, as well as an ongoing Supreme Court candidate nomination. So I'm not sure how closely you've been following this nomination, this the, uh, the, the, the process. I'm sure you have. But one thing that stuck out was a Washington Post op-ed editorial uh, earlier that said something along the lines of Republicans boast that they didn't pull a Kavanaugh. In fact, they pulled something worse. And I, I just saw that. And I think we have to get your reaction to how Republicans have been treating uh, Judge Brown and, and, the, and the process. And well, if it compares to previous Republican nominations. I mean, I think that they've literally lost their minds if they make that kind of a statement. Um, The situation with respect to Kavanaugh was fought as much in the general world of newspapers and politics. There were all sorts of intrigues going on, information, the testimony of Catherine Blasey Ford, Christine Blasey Ford, uh, the huge denunciations that took place of Kavanaugh, for example, the effort to force the Yale Law School Dean Heather Gherkin to simply remove the congratulations he gave, vicious editor in the New York Times and the Washington Post of other tax saying this man has all sorts of things to afterwards, having no recognition that whatever you think of the capabilities of, of uh, Judge Jackson um, on the district court and briefly on the Court of Appeals, Kavanaugh was before this entire fiasco started regarded as one of the sort of top five or ten appellate court judges in the United States, generally praised on a bipartisan basis. And he came out of that, I mean, to the point where he was almost a nervous wreck. I mean, I did see him speak about it at the Federal Society sometime after it happened. And you could see he was still traumatized by the particular event. Um, this essentially hit him, it hit his family, it hit his professional career. It was vicious, it was uncalled for, it was a concerted in and outside campaign. Um, I just cannot understand why they say that. What happened is individual senators asked questions that somebody might regard as mildly inappropriate with respect to uh, Judge. Jackson. Well, I mean, that is par for the course. Uh, This was milder, as far as I was concerned, than the hearings for Alito, even for Justice Roberts. Certainly, it has no relationship to what happened to Justice Thomas and what happened to Robert Bork, who never became justice. Uh, So what they're trying to do, in effect, is to say that no matter what you do, the Republicans are always worse than the Democrats. And, And let me just generalize, at least in one way from this. One of the constant tropes that this is a part of is that that's the Republicans who turn out to have upset democratic norms and to leave us in a terrible direction. This, January 26th and so forth, January 6th rather. But if you start looking at the more comprehensive record, the Steele dossier, the treatment that was made with respect to um, Judge Flynn and so forth, uh, all of this is a kind of consistent behavior which indicates that the Democrats are prepared to take extreme steps with respect to this in order to discredit anything and anybody who is associated with the Trump administration. There was a recent lawsuit trying to prevent people from running on the grounds that they were participating in an insurrection and stuff like this. I I think it's just 
over the top. It's inexcusable to do these sorts of things. Um, this is not saying because I'm a passionate defender of just, Justice Jackson. I would be stunned, or as you will be. I'll be stunned if she is turned down. My guess is a few Republicans will support her. It is also clear that the Democrats are not going to have to face an effort by the Republicans to slow down the process in one form or another as they might be able to do. That was just announced the same time that the Washington Post editorial come out. Uh, so I think what's happened is uh, the Washington Post has literally lost its marbles. And I think this is a genuine disgrace when you have a newspaper of general public record who starts to make these kinds of outlandish behavior. Let's just do it in another way. Now, how long did the Kavanaugh episode go on? From the day he was announced, right? There were a group of Democratic senators who got on the step of the Capitol building and said, basically, over my dead body. That's exactly what happened to Justice Jackson, is it? No, of course not. And so I regard this as really a state of the intellectual decrepitude of many of the progressive democratic organizations. And all I can say is shame on you for writing that kind of stuff. Well, let's just jump over to another op-ed page of a paper uh, of record, the New York Times. Last week, there was a an op-ed, which, again, got people riled up, talking about free speech. And, you know, essentially, Richard, it was an acknowledgement of cancel culture and, and free speech concerns that we've talked about on this program. And I will say, though, it had an unfortunate lead. Uh, it's it called one of people's fundamental rights, the right to speak their minds and voice their opinions in public without fear of being shamed or shunned. I'd like to get your reaction to uh, whether, well, one of our fundamental rights is not to be shamed or shunned, and, and maybe your reaction to the piece as a whole. Well, look, my whole reaction to this stuff is that we clearly have gone deeply off the rails um, in, in some fundamental sense of the word. It used to be that what happened is when somebody said something and that was thought to be offensive or difficult, somebody else would engage in counter speech in order to hold them to intellectual account. And it turns out that I think it's perfectly appropriate under those circumstances to be free, open, and uninhibited, uh, to take not quite an order. The words that Justice Brennan used when he defended the freedom of press in his view in the New York Times against Sutherland case, um, uh, Sullivan case. But at this particular point, what happens is the strategy on the other side is no longer that we're going to give speech. We're going to assume that all truths are self-evident, i.e. that we're always right. So the only question is whether or not the person who disagreed with us should be canceled in some way, whether they should be banned from Twitter, whether they should be removed from their academic positions, whether they should be suspended for a period of time until they behave correctly. Think of what happened to my student and friend Ilya Shapiro. He said something that was arguably in politics. He admitted that it was in politics. He's still suspended, as far as I could tell, from the Georgetown Law School. And Bill Traney used to be a sensible man. Uh, before he took these kinds of positions. Uh, but at this particular point, the culture is so strong that people have better judgment, don't exercise it. The same thing is true with respect to the Yale Law School. Heather Gherkin's a smart woman. She knows better. At one time, if you recall, uh, what she did is she actually sent a thank you note to uh, Justice Kavanaugh saying, you did a great job. And she was basically so browbeaten by her students that she is now absolutely immobilized. Uh, my view is that if somebody in her position were to come out today and to say, look, there was this confrontance that took place at Yale when somebody from the Alliance for Religious Freedom or whatever the name is spoke with somebody from the left and they actually tried to find some common ground and they were shouted down. 
Um, I think that she would find her job in jeopardy. So bad is the climate under these cases. So that's the bad news. The good news, if it's good news, is that many of these efforts go on. uh, But the question is, how systematic are they? And I think with actual disruption cases, it's less common than we would thought. But you have to give it at least a second thought because of two reasons. One is you don't know how many invitations are never extended because of the fear that this thing is going to start to be developed. And so that what you're seeing here is interim effect uh, rather than not demonstration effect. And the other thing is it's quite clear that on many of these issues like diversity, what happens is you start getting a really ugly rerun of the loyalty oath fiasco that took place in the 1950s. I think of my late friend, George Anastopoulos, who was an honorable human being who refused to sign one of the loyalty oaths. The Supreme Court held that you could ask that kind of question, which most people now deplore. And so for the next 30 or 40 years, he could never become a member of the bar, not because it turned out that he had done anything which remotely improper, uh, but because he refused to knuckle under. Well, now, if you want to teach in an American university, you have to define these diversity statements. Well, one of the people who could not sign one of these statements would be Martin Luther King when he started to talk about the content of your character. These are demands for political action, cooperation, and so forth. They seem to be all pervasive, and it seems to me that they have to be strongly denounced and opposed. So in that sense, you know, a lot of the campus uh, cancel culture turns out to be alive and well. You look at the American business community and so forth, when it comes to issues associated with free speech and the like, it seems to me that most of them have themselves turned to jello. They're not prepared to stand up for anything except to embrace a lot of stuff having to do with social responsibility, which again is more of these mandates with respect to diversity and other issues. So what you're doing is you're seeing an authoritarian impulse going outside the law, where anybody who's in a position to oppose this remains dead silent with respect to the way in which it starts to operate. And so who does oppose it? Uh, Basically, uh, it's the over 75 set, people like myself, many of whom are already retired. Uh, What I find so alarming is that younger people, in order to take these kinds of positions, do have to worry about their tenure, their security, their advancement, their salary improvement, and so forth. And I regard this as a very, very bad type situation. One would like to see the president of the United States speak out on some of these questions, but he's part of the problem. Anybody who disagrees with him gets the same kind of brutish, uh, ignorant treatment that he's only he seems to be capable of. So we have to really reorient ourselves. And the man who was the hero a long time ago was my late colleague, Harry Calvin, at the University of Chicago, who said that the university ought not to be taking systematic positions on anything, but ought to be a platform in which all but the most ugly people get to speak. Uh, My colleague, again, liberal Jeff Stone, who sort of updated these things a couple of years ago, stands for the same kind of tradition. Uh, To give you a nice illustration of this, uh, how it should be done correctly, Uh, Jeff Stone and Jonathan Mitchell uh, squared off on the writ of erasure fallacy having to do with the Texas law. And this was at the University of Chicago Law School. Um, Jonathan was my former research assistant and good friend. Jeff has been a friend of mine for close to 50 years. And so what happens is they have this wonderfully civil debate. And I ask the first question, and I'm chasing not after Jeff, but I'm chasing after Jonathan on the difference between void and unenforceable, a technical matter. And the audience was wonderful. The questions were good. And there 
was a rousing round of applause given to both of them when the entire event ended. That's the way you ought to handle these kinds of situations. Have reasoned debate. And it turned out what happens is if you're reasonable, the other side will be reasonable. So when you listen to the particular debate in this particular case, you saw no cheap rhetorical tricks by either man in order to rouse the crowd. They were both genuinely trying to express their uneasiness on what is in fact, an extremely difficult and troublesome theory. How do you attack Roe v. Wade? Is the decision right or wrong? To what extent do you allow sociological considerations in here or are those to be reserved only for the legislative branch? Um, all of this, I think, can happen. So it's not that this stuff is universal, but I do think it is too frequent. And I think that what happens is that we have to remember what Edmund Burke said. All that is necessary for evil to prevail in the world is for good people to remain silent. And that is what is happening much too often with respect to cancel culture speech. I want to ask you if this is, well, how much this is happening on both sides. You know, the New York Times op-ed, to its credit, was, well, I think it got a lot of heat from those on the left because it pointed a finger at the left to say, listen, cancel culture is real. There's too many on the left who don't think it's real. But then it went over to the right and said, but the right are uh, are passing laws to ban books, stifle teachers, and discourage open discussion in classrooms. This is a reference to the numerous bills, I guess, around the country in Republican-leaning states to ban the teaching of critical race theory. There is the so-called don't say gay bill in Florida. Um, this this a tendency, I think, for, well, I, we spoke last week on the program about Yale Law students, and you know, you suggested leftist Democrats are, are more likely to, to shut yeah. down a protest. Are Republicans on the other side more likely to use legislation to do something similar? Well, legislation, of course, is very different. It's not a heckless veto. You have to get the majority of both houses of your state government and the governor, and you have all the veto protection, so you have to do this. It's also a much more difficult kind of question because it's not shouting down somebody or another. Everybody from the beginning of time has recognized that the restrictions on freedom of speech are at a lower level when it turns out that the government is itself doing its own speaking. They have to be able to choose their curriculum one way or another. Uh, So, for example, if you were to run one of these things, it's perfectly permissible for a state to say, well, you want to talk about evolution, you have to give the religious side about how this turns out to be something of a mistake, or if not a mistake, then the work, uh, the the evidence of God's will in the universe and so forth. And it's not the question, by the way, you should be careful that we don't want to teach race in the history. There's no way you could basically do American history without understanding race. But I think what the argument is, if you look at these people and what they're doing, it is a total distortion of everything on the other side so that when they teach critical race theory, they're not telling anything about how it was that many black-white coalitions worked together in order to achieve the civil rights law. It certainly bears no relationship to the way in which the NAACP, for example, worked in the 1930s and 40s. It gives no recognition to the fact that the ability to pass this legislation, the civil rights legislation and so forth, depended upon extreme loyalty and very powerful alliances between liberal Democrats on the one hand, some conservative Republican um, and and black leaders in the United States. Uh, They essentially attribute an unrelenting sense of racism to everybody. So what happens is the work that these people do is largely in 
incompetent, totally false. And now what they want to do is they want to say when you're banning, what they don't want to do is they don't want to say that they're allowed to teach it. They want to make this the official curriculum of the United States or of any particular state. And I don't think they have any entitlement to do that. So you're talking about two very different things. One is how a government manages its own speech. And the other is how you shout down somebody else. Now, as you start moving out of the elementary school level and the high school level up to the college level, it seems to me that what you really want to do is to decentralize and let individual faculty members decide the way in which they want to teach. The difficulty that we have to some extent is that for a very long time now, at least since about 1972 with a case called Serrano and Priest, what happens is there's been a massive centralization of authority to pick and choose casebooks. So it's no longer left to the teacher. It's no longer left to the local school district. Often it's decided on a statewide level. And that therefore gives rise to really titanic battles, whereas you might be better off if you decentralized the function, had large numbers of smaller disputes, and some communities might choose the critical race study, and most others, I dare say, would not. And then what would happen is you could run a little experiment and see if you teach this particular curriculum what's going on. I might also add, when you start looking to the opposition to the critical race study, there's another point which would never be forgotten, which is people say, what you want to do is not only teach this stuff, but you don't want to teach as much about STEM and various sciences. And if you want to help young black children to succeed in this world, and you don't give them the technical skills so that they can enter into jobs in computing and accounting, in banking, or a thousand other industries, it's a massive social disservice. And trying to teach resentment as the dominant form of intellectual requirement is, to my mind, just a terrible way. And it has the following difficult situation. It's going to lead to people who are so suspicious of cooperative efforts that it's going to create an implicit pressure for further segregation in society, which will do nobody any good whatsoever. And so I think if you're trying to talk about that, the New York Times, as ever, what they're willing to do is to acknowledge some faults on their side. Uh, But what people are trying to do through the legislature is very pale. To give you a comparison, uh, what the Democrats are doing on this is like the way they treated Justice Kavanaugh. What the Republicans are doing on this is the way in which they treated just potential Justice Jackson on this situation. I don't think that these things are really parallel. I don't think they should be able to be such. I mean, what I do is I find myself having the following statement, which I tell to my students. I've been in the United States. I've litigated and worked on many issues. That's COVID, global warming, the Obama presidential center, the Biden dismissals, and all the rest of this stuff, I've never had less confidence in the public institutions of this United States, all three branches of government, to do the right thing. And I think a lot of this stems from political favoritism on the one hand, and from the efforts of cancel culture and similar forms of ways in which you try to make sure that one very strong partisan side is the only one which is allowed to speak and to be heard. Last one for you, Richard, and this is a two-part setup for you here. Here are the motivating questions. Should campus groups be allowed to invite whomever they want? And when does feeling threatened constitute harm? Now, I ask you this because uh, former Vice President Mike Pence was invited to speak at uh, the University of Virginia, UVA, by Young Americans for Freedom. The student newspaper there wrote uh, an op-ed with the title and subtitle, Dangerous Rhetoric is Not Entitled to a Platform. Speech that threatens the lives of those on grounds at UVA is unjustifiable. So the the, the argument there is, well, they're arguing that... President, uh, Vice President Pence, well, through his rhetoric, through his policies, threatens uh, 
various people's lives, marginalized communities, others. Um, yeah. And so that's the justification. So is there a just, is there any justification for, I guess, you know, completely? Well, let's just start with the facts and then go back to the law. This is just another illustration of utter insanity by a group of students who are accosted and who think that anything they say is not subject to rebuttal. The great problem in American education, not only in law school, but elsewhere, is you do not get faculty members who challenge students to make them specify and justify. What on earth do they think is the life-threatening situation of uh, Michael Pence? Do they think their lives are threatened? If he speaks off campus, does he think that he's going to incite riot and violence when he starts to talk? All of the work on speech essentially has said, even in cases where you're talking about heinous thing, abstract accuracy is nothing that you could shut down because you have to wait until there's something which is more imminent, more direct, more consciously directed to the commission of violence. Now what they're doing is they're talking about a guy who should be to some extent a left-wing hero because he was the fellow who refused to knuckle under to Donald Trump when he said, I don't want you to give the certification that you're asked to do in order to improve the election of Joe Biden. And that was an act of genuine courage on his particular part. It meant that Trump said, if I ever ran for president again, this guy is not going to be on the platform with me. If you look at his earlier record, I mean, he's a protege of Mitch Daniels, one of the great American political leaders of our time. He served in all three branches of government. What on earth are they starting to think about? It seems to me if they say that Mr. Pence threatens their lives. What they are really saying is that no Republican should ever be allowed on campus whatsoever because they're also threatening our lives. Uh, so uh, this kind of loose, dangerous, ugly rhetoric, if applied by the other side, means that you could have nobody who believes in Black Lives Matter come to campus itself because somebody's going to say, I think my life is going to be threatened. Hysterical speech should never be accommodated. They should be chastised. I don't think they should be punished, but I think, in effect, they should get a verbal whipping by people who start to disagree with them because they're irresponsible, they're lazy, and they're ugly. Now, the larger question you ask is, well, whom can you invite on campus? Well, the first principle that one makes is the university is a platform. And so when somebody is invited to use the particular platform, it is not an endorsement by the university or any official body of the positions that that person is going to take. That is the essence of the Calvin report that I referred to earlier. And so they want to do something, it seems to me that what you have to do, in effect, is to be reasonably confident that the only speech that is likely to take place on the particular occasion would something that would be libelous per se. So if somebody says, I'm going to come on campus in order to speak to explain why some racial group is filled with bigots, ignoramuses, and so forth, or to say, in effect, that I want to engage in mass slaughter with these people, or that I think that anybody who disagrees with me should be treated like a Nazi. It may be something like that you can start the ban. Uh, but the key thing that makes this work is that there are very few people who you will want, any group would want to invite onto campus who had those sorts of things. Think of what would happen if young Americans with freedom decided to invite somebody like that, and somebody would say, YAF now stands for Young Americans for Fascism. There are a huge amount of self-constraint. So the basic attitude that one always takes upon this is you do not start hitting these broadsides across the bow of somebody coming on campus. You wait until you get somebody who is really 
Khan, who has basically announced in advance his intention to do something. And even then, it may be better than trying to keep him off campus is to ask students not to attend. Collective refusals to deal are very powerful, not to go in the room and to shut him down, but to make sure that the room is as empty as it could be. And then if some people go there and speak, what they should do is take the opportunity in regular fashion to excoriate the speaker for what he has done. But taking this wild preemptive position, which means, in effect, I want this campus to be a democratic hothouse is, I think, the worst possible way. And if I were the president of the University of Virginia, I would write a letter to the newspaper saying, this is the most impolic situation you could do. And I think what you have done is brought shame and disgrace onto our fair institution. You've been listening to The Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, on defining ideas at hoover.org every week. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share it with your friends and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. Catch you next week. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.